Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ohio Huntsman Podcast with your hosts Jason, Jacob, and Jeff. And as you're about to hear, Jeff and I interviewed Mike Tonkovich this week from the Division of Wildlife. We start off talking about muzzleloader harvest numbers, but we cover a ton in this. We talk about everything from why muzzleloader season is in January, why they added the antlerless restrictions to public land this year, and we even talk about changing the management from by county and going to more habitat-based units. So make sure you listen all the way to the end, and I hope you enjoy this one. We, we really enjoyed talking to Mike, so without further ado, let's get into it. Super excited today. We have got, not only do we have Jeff on the podcast, but we've got Mike Tonkovich, who is the Deer Program Administrator for the, would it be the Division of Wildlife or the ODNR, or how, how does that Actually, work? Actually, yeah, it'd be the ODNR Division of Wildlife. We're one of, okay. we're one of the divisions within the Department of Natural Resources. Okay. And so, where I thought we would kind of start, we're going to talk about muzzleloader season today. Muzzleloader harvest numbers were just released. But I figured we would start by, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, how it, how it is that you came to be the deer program administrator, a little bit of that. What, what are the roles and yeah. responsibilities of the deer program administrator? Yeah, love to do that, love to do that. And, and, and thanks for having me, uh, guys. I really, I really appreciate that. I, uh, Jason, when we were trading emails, uh, trying to get this arranged, you know, as I said, I, I think, um, uh, it, it's vitally important. Um, communication is 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 key, and and I I think 90% of our problems could be solved with with better communication. So when I have the opportunity to to reach out to folks and and, and let folks know uh, that we're here, we care, uh, we're listening. Uh, you know, that, I think that's nothing but progress. It's money well spent, in my opinion. But a little bit about myself. Um, as I mentioned before, we came on. I I was uh, I'm an Ohio native. I was born and raised in in Trumbull County. Um, uh, some time ago, um, we'll leave that we'll leave that information for another topic, <laughs> I guess. But born and raised in, in, in Trumbull County, graduated from Warren Western Reserve, um, left uh, left Warren and went to uh, Columbus. Uh, I graduated from Ohio State uh, with a with a bachelor's degree in, in wildlife management um, from the School of Natural Resources there, and then I left and, and went on to become a Hokie for the next um, eight years or so, uh, where I earned a master's and. And PhD from Virginia Tech. Um, both of those came in uh, the F- Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Sciences. Um, worked on um, both both masters and PhD were, were really habitat-oriented projects. The first working on uh, uh, non-game birds um, and looking at habitat relationships on farmland, modeling habitat relationships on farmlands there in Southside Virginia. And then and then I stayed on to do a PhD working on quail. So. Hate to disappoint everybody, but I don't really even have an education on deer. But I've had the last <laughs> 24 years. I've had the last 24 years to accumulate that information, and, and we've got uh, to make sure that we keep the, the train on the tracks. Uh, hired a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, young man. He's younger than I am. Uh, uh, my my right hand man, Clint McCoy. Uh, in 2013, um, he does bring a, a wealth of deer experience. He his master's and PhD both um, uh, working on deer. So we're we've got that covered. But I remember vividly um, drove to Massachusetts uh, of all places for one of the few interviews that I got when I was trying to finish up uh, my PhD and made it clear I made it clear to the to the folks that I was um, I was not really prepared to answer a lot of deer related questions. Of course, I grew up hunting with my grandfather in, in eastern 
Pennsylvania, um, I'm sorry, Western Pennsylvania. Um, and I said, I'm not really prepared. You know, I know boys and I know girls and I know they have fur and four legs and all that kind of stuff. Right. But beyond that, I said, I've, I'm really, I'm really quantitative. I said, but I don't know a whole lot about deer. So, oh no, don't worry. We figure if you can get a PhD, you can learn deer. I'm like, that sounds great. I'll make the run from Virginia to Massachusetts. And I get there, and the very, very first question, and this is the honest truth, uh, the very first question was, so, Mike, tell us, what is the best overall indicator of deer herd quality um, to use over the long term? And I'm like, you are kidding me, right? <laughs> I had no idea. Of course, it turns out it's yearling beam diameter, yearling antler beam diameter, and um uh, that's a great story. That's only part of the story because I actually talked to a gal that eventually got that job, worked in that job for a number of years, and she said, Mike, I had the same interview, the same first question. So I didn't know, but, but today I, I certainly do know that uh, yearling beam diameter is, is, in fact, one of our best overall indicators of long-term uh, uh, deer herd conditions. So we use that we use that a lot. But anyway, so left there in 95, I ended up interviewing, uh, did a phone interview for, uh, with the Division of Wildlife in 95, and I thought for sure that I would never hear from them again, and uh, as it turns out, I must have done all right, and they offered me the job. So actually, they offered me an in-person interview, and then I, I got through that. So without a whole lot of deer experience, I brought a lot of enthusiasm to the Division of Wildlife, and, and I guess that, um, you know, it, it, it turns out that uh, I think my boss knew exactly what he was looking at because it takes a lot of uh, people's skills to do this job, and, and not a lot of, I mean, I'm not downplaying the science side of things because that's really important too, but um, as you guys can imagine, I work a lot with people. So I started in 1995, and that's what I've been doing since. I live in Athens County with my wonderful wife, and, and I have two amazing children. Um, one's a, a freshman at Kent State, and the other is going to be uh, running on a scholarship at, at Ohio University starting in this fall. So that's my story, um, and um, um, we can talk about, now that we got that out of the way, we can talk about deer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, thank you Sorry for running through that for us. No, 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 that's yeah, perfect. Yeah. That, that's perfect. Okay. I was I appreciate you running through that for us because, you know, I didn't know your story and, I, and I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that uh, that don't know it either and so that helps kind of set the stage a little bit where where you're coming from where your background is, yeah. and so I think that's important. So one question before we get into that, I had I had two kind of uh, I don't know un untopic related questions, but. Yeah. With with all of that, do you still have time to deer hunt? You know, that's a great question, and you did. I only <laughs> answered part of that question because you asked about what you know, what do I do as a deer program administrator? But 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 Jason, that's a great question, and I I I, I don't deer hunt. Um, I haven't deer hunted for probably three or four years, and and, okay. and there's. I'm not making excuses because I don't I don't do that. Um uh, I we I think we all choose to do what we do with our with our free time and to say mm -hmm. that I don't have time would be would be ignorant of me to say that. I I I've chosen not to but partly because um I I do it every single day, you know, I'm I'm in deer, I'm immersed in deer. Um sure. and, and part of it too, um quite honestly is that when I bought my property in in 2000 and I'm sorry, 1990 1996 the deer numbers were were fairly low, and and it it was a, it was really it was about hunting and learning deer movement and deer behavior and deer habits and, and you know that type of thing. But but when deer numbers got really high, um, 
I guess they must have had a, a, a pretty poor deer biologist or something to let that happen. But anyway, <laughs> uh, when deer numbers got high, I sort of lost interest. And, and then, of course, my kids uh, have been really heavily involved in sports, and I, I have not sure. missed a single event. Um, and we have some other things that, you know, my wife and I both work full time. We have some other things, you know, other side jobs, um, you know, that we that we work on together. And, and so the long and short of it is I I, uh, I have fallen out of, of, of hunting, but um, – I, I have to say, um, it uh, it qualifies me. I, I think it, it it still allows me to do the job that I do. And sometimes I think, in some ways, maybe even um, maybe even better. Um, but but I think I've got to say, you know, I've got to say something that that I think uh, that, that I think listeners really need to know about Mike Tonkovich, and, and that is that you know, I know that there are folks out there that are listening, probably uh, perhaps right now that 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 feel that. You know, our job is to make your, you know, your hunting experience miserable. But boy, oh boy, that couldn't be any further from the truth. And talk about having the most passionate person working for you. Um, you know, I, I think even though I'm not, I'm not carrying a bow into the woods much anymore. You know, I, I still, I would love for every hunter to be successful, every yeah. hunter to have a pleasant experience, every hunter to be able to get to the property that they'd like to get to. But um, managing a deer population is incredibly challenging. I mean, you've got. Um, as you well know, I mean, we've got 11 million residents in this state, and, and I really, uh, you know, the truth is, I'm not going to be bashful about it. I work for all 11 million people. I know that I know that not all of those folks pay our salary, but we have we have obligations, whether it's Lyme disease, whether it's deer car crashes, whether it's agricultural damage. We have to be mindful uh, of all of those folks, and so it's a constant. You know, as a deer project leader, deer program administrator, guys, it it, it is a um, it's probably best summed up as a as a, as a tightrope uh, walk. You know, it's it's constantly trying to balance um, uh, those who want more, those who want less, um, and and trying to find that that middle ground. Uh, whether it's the timing of a season, the number of deer, the opening of the season dates. You know, whether you start on a Saturday or a Monday. You know, there's there's just it's it's a constant it's a constant struggle to try to keep that um, um, and and then facing. You know, disease threats and, and license sales. So um, that's that's kind of the day uh, in the life of a of a deer program administrator. But but yeah. I can say, you know, again, mm-hmm. that, uh, not not wearing those muck boots um, and getting into the stand with the camo on has not pre- prevented me, I I think, from doing uh, being as passionate as I can be about you know working for those hunters in Ohio. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I'll I'll tell you I uh, I do not envy you with like you said having to juggle all those. All those interests and and keep everybody in mind that I'm sure that's a that's a tough role. I, I do not envy you in that in that sense. Yeah. Um. So with that, do we want to jump into muzzleloader season then? That'd be fine with me. We can talk about anything you guys like to talk about. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Be happy to. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I guess we'll start with with harvest numbers because you guys just like I said. Earlier, you guys just released the the harvest numbers for muzzleloader season this year, and yeah. if I'm seeing right, it was it was just over fourteen thousand deer this year. Yeah, yep, we were we were up a tick over last year, which was um, you know as seasons go, one, one thing that happens is is you know twenty four years. This is probably I guess this will be my twenty fourth deer season. Um, you know they sort of run together, but but also they sometimes. Um, you have you have years that stand out as 
um, really amazing, really disappointing. Uh, this would probably qualify as one of those years where you're, you're, you're really not sure what the heck to make of things. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been, it's, been, you know, to put it, to put it scientifically, it's been an interesting season, um, to, to say the least. You know, we've, we've had a few things going on, um, that, that, you know, speak to some, de- you know, some of the declines that we're seeing, but, but, um, um, Muzzleloader season was a surprise, and that in and of itself simply because of the weather. I mean, I know it opened on a weekend, but Saturday and Sunday, guys, listen, I was out. Um, we have four vehicles in our family, and I was out as long as it took me to wash those four plus in and out of the house out to the pole barn and didn't hear a thing, but thinking to myself, man, if, I know if, uh, you know, uh, it would be a tough call to hunt or take care of some, you know, the, the last leaf raking that needed to be done or, or yeah. gutters that needed to be cleaned out or take the Christmas decorations down. You know, and then to find out that we ended up killing, you know, more deer than we did last year, I was really pleasantly surprised with that. Yeah. Um, but, but to counter that, I think, I think, uh, as I, as I've told folks all along, um, the deer are there. I, I, I believe in my heart of hearts, the numbers say they're there. And so when you don't, if you don't kill them in muzzle or if you don't kill them in the gun season and you, and you have them, uh, you know, the, the, the bonus gun fails to produce a, a sufficient harvest. The deer don't disappear. They don't pack their bags and leave to adjacent sure. states. They're still there. And so there were deer on the landscape to be harvested. And so the muzzleloader hunters, um, even if the numbers were down, I would argue that probably what happened is guys were really successful out there. You know, just just had a, a great season. I mean, if you like warm weather, um, that was that would be would have been a great season to, to get out. You know, you, it was almost like early fall. I mean, it was it was really. Uh, I was quite surprised. I, I yeah. expected anything. If it would have been down to 9,000 or 10,000 a year, I probably wouldn't have really blinked an eye. I would have been like, yeah, the weather would really, uh, you know, mm-hmm. triple us again. But uh, I'm I'm happy that it turned out the way that it did. Yeah. How, do you guys try to correlate weather during the seasons to harvest numbers? Do you look at that data at all? Like, oh, it was super cold during muzzleloader and, and the harvest numbers were X or, the you know, it was warmer and – you guys look at that at all? Do you think weather plays yeah, an effect on harvest numbers? That's a great question, Jason. Um, the um, the answer to that is yes. Uh, unfortunately, I wish we I wish we had long term. So we do that within a year. In other words, we're going to talk about we can talk about we can talk about the miserable season that we had during gun season because of the weather. We can talk about mm-hmm. the bonus gun season, but but to remember. Um, what it was like this year versus last. Now that's when things start to really get muddy and things start to run together. Now I can I can quote some years like 2007 when we had um, we had a 51% drop in the opening day gun season harvest because of you know literally I think two inches of rain across the state. It rained all day Monday and part of Tuesday. Yeah. Um, by the end of the season we had picked up. You know, I think we had end up being down like 11%. But but I remember. Crazy events like that. Um, I remember muzzleloader season in 2009. You know, uh, we had that was the first year we moved it back to um, uh, back into January from the from the December you know the, the mm-hmm. holiday uh, hunt, if you will. Moved it back into January, and I was fully expecting um, the harvest to drop way off because I mean most of the state had. Um, some ice on the ground, I know, so snow on the ground, ice on top of that, and then it was like four degrees. And, and then the harvest was like, we set like a record harvest that year. So those kinds of things we remember, but oftentimes the only time we really talk about the weather is within the year because it's so hard. I'd love to have gone back, you know, I, I'd like to go back for the 24 years that I would, was here and, and look in the file and say, okay, weather was an issue during gun season or standing corn was an issue during, 
you know, during the season this year, but we don't, you know, we don't really keep that. But we know that it's it's it it is totally legitimate. I mean, it, the weather is, as you guys well know, as hunters, that it, it can yeah. make or break a season. Yeah. So, um, a good question about muzzleloader season being moved from between the holidays until after the new year. Was that for more of a biological reason? Was that because of biology, or is that more of a hunter demand, or uh, what went into making that decision? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That's a, that's a that's a really good question. But it, it was all had 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 nothing to do with biology of the species. It had everything to do with with trying to manage the harvest. So let's 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 go back to two thousand. Let's go back to two thousand and seven and think about what we were doing uh, from seven through about two thousand thirteen. And and of course, you get, as you guys well know, we were trying to reduce the, the statewide deer population. So. Several things went into uh, that's kind of a, dra- a backdrop to what I'm about to tell you with the muzzleloader season. But but um, the season was moved uh, to to the week between Christmas and New Year's for one reason and one reason only. Back when uh, it would have been like 1998 or thereabouts, uh, I think Mike Buzzick was the chief at the time, and a, and a great idea. I mean, he, he you know he had his thoughts were in the right place. He he felt as some you know some in 2018 some 20 years later some two decades later still bring the same issue up like why don't we move the season back into the christmas holiday because kids are home from school parents are off work junior gets a you know junior or sally gets a muzzleloader for christmas they can go out and they can hunt you know during the muzzleloader season nice idea um well, when I when I began thinking about moving, you know, proposing to move the season back uh, to January, one of one of the things that I looked at, one of the factors that I looked at was our kids really participating at a higher rate during the uh, during the muzzleloader season as compared to, say, for instance, the statewide gun season when when kids, in theory, um, are supposed to be in school, with the exception of some districts, you know, uh, that give kids the first day off. I don't even know how yeah. prevalent that is anymore. When I was growing up, that was that was you know Pennsylvania. I think the entire state shut down. It was a state holiday. I think um, uh, it was a neat exercise um, because I, I thought, you know, let's let's see if we can't get at whether or not this is actually doing what we thought it was going to do, and that is get a few more kids out during the muzzleloader season. So so I looked at, again, the, the standard or the control in this case was the gun season. And, again, just to repeat, uh, just in case uh, listeners may not have heard, you know, I, I felt like um, I would expect um, if, if the muzzleloader season, of course, was having some impact on youth participation, that it would be higher as uh, than, than during the statewide gun season because kids would be home uh, as opposed to during our statewide gun season when they should have been in school, with the exception, of course, of the weekend. Um, and now what I what I did, um, it probably wasn't uh, it wasn't truly participation, but it was actually harvest. Uh, what I looked at was harvest. So so there could be some uh, you know I guess there could be an argument made that maybe um, success rates because success rates are so much different maybe different during the muzzleloader season. As opposed to gun season, this wasn't a valid analysis. But um, what I ended up finding, guys, was that that during the gun season, seven percent of of the harvest uh, was taken by youth hunters. That is, those seventeen or under. Um, and then that was during the statewide gun season. But during the statewide muzzleloader season, as it turns out, it was identical. Um, about seven percent of the total harvest taken during the statewide muzzleloader season was also taken by youth. So, in, in fairness. Um, you know, it, it could be that because of success rates, um, that there, that participation was actually a, a bit higher during the statewide muzzleloader season. But that was only one of the things that we looked at. The other, uh, the other, uh, there were three things really. The other thing that we looked at was 
I know this sounds silly, but we talked about weather earlier. Um, but but the reality is is that we were looking to by moving the season back into January, we knew that we increased the odds of actually having snow on the ground. And and you and I both know, we all know, I should say, you know what that does for you know for visibility and, and yeah. mm-hmm. success. So we were hoping to have snow on the ground because again, that's where our conversation started with was trying to kill additional antlerless deer. And the third and final thing was. Uh, you guys may recall when we introduced the the the, uh, the two day bonus gun season. There there were a couple years, if the if the seven day gun season actually started late in the year, and some years it would actually start in December, um, it would mean that if you if you backed up a little bit further and went back to the two day uh, youth season, which was mid November. But then we we fast forward two weeks later, we've got a seven day gun season. We have a week or so off, ten days off, and then we bring back a two day muzzle or two day bonus gun season, and then we brought back, you know, a week later, we have guys out there for four or five days hunting with muzzle loaders. So so we felt like a um, couple things related to that. Number one, the, the deer hunters certainly could use a break, you know, as well as I do. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you, you get some grief for hunting too much, um, <laughs> time to build up brownie points. So if we if we space the seasons a little bit more, um, the hunters would, would get rejuvenated, rejuvenated. They'd go back, they'd earn those brownie points, they'd earn that vacation time or whatever it would be. And then, uh, also the deer would have a rest from, from the, you know, from the guns in the woods. And, uh, so the, the, that was, that was what, what, you know, those three things, the weather, um, the, uh, the, the participation not being there that we expected it. And, and then, uh, also trying to give the deer and the deer hunters a rest, um, was, you know, were the principal reasons for moving it back. But it's it, it's so funny that you talk about it. You talk about a we talk about balance and we talk about juggling. There is not there was not a there was not a group a crowd that I could that I would go visit. Whether it was the Deer and Turkey Expo, the Buck, Big Buck Club Banquet, the Ohio Bowhunters Association, I don't care who I was talking to. If I said, okay, give me a show of hands, who wants to keep the the season where it's at, the room would un- invariably be divided in half. Always. I mean, there was never a majority <laughs> in terms of where they. Where folks wanted that season, it was just, I mean, it was almost laughable because I yeah. could predict uh, it would be 50, 51%. You know, we might get that kind of spread between the two. But um, so it, it works out, you know, now, um, you know, it, it, it's it's reasonable. But just the other day, someone brought that back up. Hey, why don't we think about moving the, the season to the Christmas holidays and maybe more kids would participate? I said, okay, <laughs> how much time you got at that home? Yeah. 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 But a great question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you guys are looking, muzzleloader season, the, the week-long gun season, how uh, how much weight do you put on a, like a one-year set of numbers, or are you looking more at trends and you know maybe like a three to five-year trend? Or do, do you get too worked up if one year is like, like for example, the bonus gun, the, the numbers were way down this year, right? Do you guys yeah. get too worked up about that, or, or no? That's, that's an awesome question. You know, I, I, you know, I think if listeners were were paying attention, they'd almost think that we planted that question because that's such a good question. Quite honestly, <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate that question. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've, uh, if you guys have had a chance to take a look at our at our um, our deer season summary. It's a great publication. Clint does a tremendous job on that. Um, it summarizes everything you want to know about deer um, in the state of Ohio for the you know the past year. Um, it's publication fifty three hundred four. You can grab that off our website. But but a couple of years ago, guys, we started we started doing something a little bit differently. Um, the year over comparisons, just as you point out, Jason, they, in my opinion, they're worthless, um, and and we we should never be talking about 
this year versus last year. And so in an effort to try and move away from that, and that's a hard habit to break. I understand. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, you know, hunters want to do, they want to compare this, this county with that county. They want to compare this year with that year. And I, I completely get it. But what we're trying to do uh, is, is move away from that. And, and instead of comparing this year's harvest to last year's harvest, what you will see when you look at that publication is this year's harvest compared to the last three years on average. Okay, so we'll take the average of the past three years and compare it to the current year because I think that provides a much better it provides a much better picture. You know, I mean, even yeah. though it's still looking at this year versus that's which is one data point, it's it's better than this year versus last year. It's okay. Last year's bonus gun season was way down, but let's talk about why it was way down. And part of the reason why it was, or this year's was way down, whatever the, whatever the year, whatever year you pick, I can tell you that oftentimes, and this is, this is, we kind of danced around this topic just a little bit, but one of the things that, that oftentimes, and I, I guess I kind of touched on it early on, is that the deer are on the landscape, and, and if you don't kill them last year, you're gonna, you're gonna carry most of those deer forward this year. So, Sure. So when you have a year, for instance, I like to call them artificial increases or artificial decreases or obligate decreases or obligate increases because when you had a year like, let's just pick last year, let's just say the bonus gun season was down around 9,000 <clears> because of horrific weather or something like that. Well, even if this year, even if the deer population was stable and everything was the same, the, the harvest is going to come up simply because last year was artificially suppressed, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It was down yeah. not because of deer, but it was down for some other reason. So it's going to be up right. this year. And so when folks start talking about, oh, the harvest was way up, what do you make of that? Well, I make of, what I make of it is it was it's just bouncing back from where it was <laughs> last year. But so that's where the that's where the three year averages we start looking at. Oh, okay, I guess it's really not any different than what what it's been over the last three years. So trends are, you know, we started the conversation about that you know that silly interview question um, that I had, and, and of course. Even, even, even um, as you guys well know, looking at uh, uh, yearling antler beam diameter this year is not a is really not a uh, is not a good thing to do simply because of mast. I mean, mast crop can dramatically affect um, beam diameters. You know, a very wet, productive spring can affect can affect antler development, and you might see that um, uh, you might see that that would show up in this year's bucks, and, and then a good mast year would, would carry forward into next year's antler development. You know, so they're, they're putting the deer, it's, it's, it's this year's, this, this past spring, spring of 18 would affect antler development for this year's bucks that we would be measuring. But this year's mast crop would, of course, affect the button bucks, would, which would put them through the winter in, you know, in better condition and larger body weights and start them off on a higher, mm -hmm. you know, Higher nutritional plane, if you will. Sure. So that would show up in next year's in next year's um, uh, yearling antler being measurements a, a, a good mass crop. So we got to we got to be mindful of that, and that's why we never ever really want to talk about. And we can talk about the public land regulations. You know, I'm, I'm sure we, we'll get to that. And that's someone asked me today, Mike, if you had to. I oh, know that was actually yesterday. How long do you think that you know? I, I told someone, and I took a guess at how long you would like to see this regulation in place before you know before you guys make a decision. And I said, I think you know the answer. It's going to be at least three years. Ideally, we'd have it in mm -hmm. place three years before we start talking about um, you know the impact that uh, the regulation had on the harvest. So, great question. The bottom line yeah. is, or, or to circle sum that all up, it's it's trends. We never really want to look at this year versus last year or that. That data point versus that. It's it's how does this compare to the long term trend? Yeah, and I I I was I sort of suspected that would be your answer, and I asked that intentionally because I'm kind of a you know I, I I'm kind of a data nut, right? I, I look at the 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 deer summary report every year, and I pour over the data in there because I I just love data, and 
you know, you find yourself as a hunter wanting to go, boy, last year was way better or, or, or this year seems, you know, to be way better. But, but, you know, that doesn't paint the entire picture. So I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, kind of explained that and, uh, expanded on that for us. Yeah. So, Jeff, do you have a question you want to ask or could I keep going? Well, um, well, just kind of going down the same vein here, um, you know, uh, total harvest numbers are down compared to last year. Um, but basically you're kind of saying that that's not much to worry about. Uh, we'll get them next year kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's actually, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, go ahead and finish out that question and I can, I can really speak to no. that because that's where we have to. I was done. I was done. You can go ahead and okay. talk. Okay. Yeah. But but that's a, that's a great that's a great question. So so just just before just before we we started today, guys, one of the things that I wanted to do um, was was look at um, the the harvest in in segments, you know, through the season. Now, which is which is not something I typically like to do because um, that's where you get into you can get into some hot water when you start talking about. Because guys, there's a you know we look at okay how's it, how was it through the through the youth season how was it through the early archery season you know um, you start getting into hot water there because um, there's there's things like hunter behavior and, and and dramatic shifts that we're seeing in the archery harvest and and so what I'd like to do uh, and, and and actually believe it or not this is actually something we we, we probably shouldn't get into because it's, it gets kind of it gets kind of complicated to explain but even the start even if our season was to start a week earlier or a week later, in some years it actually can do that, um, that can have a dramatic influence on the season. So my, my pat answer has always been, we'll count the deer when the season's over, then, then call me and we'll have a discussion about it. But, but, but <laughs> this, year, this year was a little bit different uh, because uh, it wasn't going exactly like Clint and I expected it would go. Um, we, we anticipated the harvest would be up, and, and, and it would be up in the start of the season. It would be up in the middle of the season, and it would be it would it would turn out uh, at the end of the season we'd we'd have more deer on the ground than we did last year. Um, and, and things weren't really um, they weren't going uh, that way um, early on or um, uh, or later. But but I got a chance to go back and look at, at look at some numbers, and I want to share I want to share those with you because. It does paint a little different picture than than what um, what the total numbers are, are saying to us right now. And of course, you guys, I, I know you fully recognize this, but I'm going to mention it anyway. That that you have to be. Um, this year was a, was uh, was a, a relatively quiet year in terms of regulation changes. In fact, the only regulation changes to speak of were the public land regulations. Um, yeah. So, so, so those th- that would the reason why I say that is we have to be mindful that we can't look at total harvest typically because historically Ohio has been very bad about changing antlerless harvest regulations and when you do that you know, all of a sudden you you've really impacted your ability to look at total harvest so you you can only look at buck harvest because that's the only thing that has been consistent year in and year out is that we the regulations have always limited hunters to a single buck. It's you know it's been an either sex season all season long so so that's consistent but we have to be very careful about looking at antlers harvest or total harvest so so let me mention just uh, just real quickly and I'm going to break this out into private land versus public land because you know we wanted I did this to, uh, intentionally to look at the regulation the impact the regulations may be having on mm-hmm. on our antlers harvest but um, so prior just the day before gun season started if we look at if we look at um, our pub, our private land, okay, private land, let me restate that so we don't get folks confused, but if we look at our private land data, 
and we'll break it into two piles, antlered and antlerless. Okay, our antlered harvest, our antlered buck harvest, uh, up until up until the start of the gun season, um, we were actually up almost three percent. Okay, so the buck harvest, which is which is our really our best index of overall herd size, was telling us at the start of gun season on private land we were up up three percent. Okay, the antlerless harvest on private land was actually up just about a percent prior to the start of gun season. Okay. Now, looking at things on public land, a little different story, and, and this was actually a, a bit of a surprise to me, um, but, but prior to the start of gun season, our antlered buck harvest on public land was already down 8%. And amazingly enough, I, I really, Clint and I cannot get our heads wrapped around this one, but prior to the start, and remember, there are no regulations affecting uh, the, the, uh, the public land antlers harvest at this point, but the antlers harvest mm-hmm. prior to the start of the gun season was already down 27%. Okay. Wow. So, where we stand today, where we stand today, again, if, if you look at if you look at things through this would have been through the muzzleloader season, so not necessarily today, but through the muzzleloader season, if we again break things out, public land, private land, we'll start with our private land antler buck harvest. Right now, we're we're only off just a little over four percent in terms of our buck harvest on on private land. Now, remember, most of our state is privately owned, so so we're talking mm-hmm. about most of our population. The antlerless harvest, on the other hand, on private land is off about 8%. Okay. Public land, very different story. Uh, very different story. We're down, our antler buck harvest is off 18, almost 19% on, on public land, and our antlerless harvest is off 44%. Okay. So, wow. so a good chunk of that, uh, a good chunk of that is, is through, now the other, the other thing that I didn't mention to you, and I guess we can go over one set of, one more set of numbers, uh, we'll just talk about the public land, because I wanted to mention this, that if we look at, if we look at the harvest through the end of gun season, so this is, this is, you know, obviously, uh, Clint was thinking ahead, and he said, well, let's look at what things look like before the start of gun, because we had a miserable gun season, let's face it, Monday and Tuesday were horrible. Yeah. Um, but through the end of gun season, and this is where I started uh, my analyses, um, this was out, without any regulations, we were, the antlerous harvest was still off 34%. So uh, clearly, uh, the public land regulations are having an impact on the antlerous harvest because we went from you know 33% um, uh, prior to the start of the gun season down to 44% after the gun mm. season and through the muzzleloader season. So they're they're having the desired impact. They're they're putting they're moving us in the right direction. Now, of course, the question you know the, the the very relevant question at this point is, will that translate to larger deer harvest eventually on public land? And of course, that remains to be seen. We have to you know we're going to have to keep these regulations in place a couple couple more years, sure. um, and see what kind of impact they actually have on the harvest because. You know, guys, let's let's be straight here. You know, we're not about trying to grow deer for p- private land hunters to harvest. You know, that, that are growing on public land and then move off because pressure builds and they move off and they're harvested on private land. That's not what this is about. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. You know, because because the other thing that we could end up with is, you know, that that obviously could benefit private land hunters, but it also could could result in conflict on those on those adjacent private properties. We don't want to end up in more deer strikes. We don't want to end up with more crop damage complaints adjacent to our public lands that are under these regulations. What we want is our hunters to be more successful during uh, during our, our our deer seasons on public land. And so, while I'm excited about the direction that the harvest is going, you know, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, you know, I want to wait I want to wait for a while to see that, you know, either A, we're seeing an increase in harvest or B, you know, we do run we do run surveys every year and hopefully what we'll find is that the experiences of our hunters on public lands have actually improved over the 
uh, as a result of these regulations, a more positive uh, hunting experience, whether it's seeing more deer or harvesting more deer or both. And so that was, I guess, to kind of continue on the the antlerless restrictions, that was put in place sort of as a uh, maybe a short-term pain for long-term gain type of let's let's give the antlerless deer a break to cuz that's your that's your population increasing unit right if you if you give the does yep. a break they're going to reproduce more and in theory you end up with more deer absolutely yeah you nailed it precisely i mean there is uh there has been building support um uh, for um, uh, us doing something to reduce the um uh, the antlers harvest on on um, on our public lands. Um, in fact, two thirds of the people that we surveyed uh, in 2015, I believe this is, uh, or 2016, maybe we combined these data sets. But but 67% of hunters said that uh, you know we would like you to reduce antlers harvest on public land. Now there was some discre- there was some discussion about how we do that, but the idea is that you know yes, if we give the, if we give our public land antlers harvest a break, um, we can we can actually grow a few more deer uh, because. Um, what we're finding is that uh, we have the empirical data that says hunting success is half of uh, on public land is half of what it is on private land. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the hunter satisfaction scores are much lower um, on, on public land as opposed to private land. So, and, and the other thing, guys, and it's really you know it's worth mentioning. I'm sorry for I'm sorry for rambling on here, but but this thing, one thing that I want to mention is it's just so telling. Um, when we when we reduced and you guys are of course avid Ohio hunters so you're paying close attention attention to the regulations but maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating this but but in 2015 that those two years 15 and 16 um, guys we we dialed back on the antlers harvest by reducing bag limits in almost every county mm-hmm. we took away the antlers permit almost in every county um, yep. you know less seven urban mm-hmm. counties um, and so the the idea there was let's Let's give, um, you know, we, we need to, re- we've done our job. We've came in um, and we reduced the deer population down to goal. It's time to dial back on the on the harvest of antlers deer so that the deer population can recover because if we keep the regulations in place, we're going to continue to reduce the deer herd. So that said, what we were able to do, guys, and, and just a quick population dynamics lesson here, um, what we found is that, and this is these are, these are kind of ballpark, but, but w- what we find is that if, if roughly 60% of our, of our total harvest each year is antlerless, then the deer population is is probably going to stay relatively stable. If we if we move that up to say 65%, uh, anything above 60%, we're going to reduce the population because we're taking too many antlerless deer. Anything less than 60%, what we're going to see is a is, is a population rebound. Okay, because we're sparing a lot more antlerless deer, and so populations tend to grow. Okay, so 60% is the magic number. Anything more, you're going to reduce. Anything less, you're going to grow. We put the regulations in place in 2015 and 16, and what we ended up seeing was really kind of the, the I guess, the final straw that says, hey, you got to do something on public land because the regulations, uh, hunters are not backing off. What we found is that when we put those regulations in place on private land, it reduced the proportion of the antlerless deer in the harvest from that you know mid 60s to 63 range down into the very low 50s. Okay. But we did when we when we looked at just the public land data over those same two years, guys, it didn't drop below sixty percent. Guys were still shooting the last doe they saw. Okay, so mm-hmm. so the, the reality is is that because well, the reason why I mention that is folks are like, well, I'd be fine with it if you did it on every single piece of property, private as well as public. And it, and the reality is we could not. If we did that on private land, we'd be having deer come out our 
eyelids, if you will. Okay. Right. Right. So our, our deer herd on our deer on public land need more protection. That's the only way we're going to grow deer is to, to provide protection because it's not going to come voluntarily by our hunters. Because, you know, let's face it, um, deer are hard to come by sometimes on public land. Not all public land, but but some of the real heavily hunted areas, their numbers are low, and so guys are are shooting the first deer they see because they may not see another deer. So. They need some protection, and that that those two years really you know sealed the deal, if you will, in terms of public land regulations. They need that additional layer of protection, and we can't put those same regulations on private land because the deer population would explode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I mean, we've seen it. We you know we live in in northeast Ohio, but we have a hunting camp down in the Wayne National Forest, and you know there's a there's a journal if you will down there that you know they talk about how many deer we shot this year and that kind of thing and and just looking back over the years you know it's it's we've seen that decline in public land and we hunt a little bit of public and private down there but but what uh, county may i ask that we hunt is it washington or athens yeah washington yeah washington county yep yeah yeah I know exactly where you guys are probably camping. I mean, it's it's a very common place. And, and I just had a conversation with a guy from Maryland, and and he was telling me that he hunts near uh, he hunts in Hocking or Athens County on the Wayne National Forest, and, and very similar experience. You know, just the deer population tanks. Um, and, and and we when, when Clint and I were talking today, I said let's go back and look at some of the numbers from previous years, and, and this decline on public land um, really has been at work for a couple years now. I mean, I think. We've just—they just need a break. I mean, and, and and you put it, you put it best, Jason. It's a it's a short-term sacrifice for really, I, I think, a long-term gain. And folks need to recognize that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind of biting, you know. And the, the beautiful thing is, I mean, the reality is, okay, you're not buying into the the regulation. Well, shoot your antlers deer before gun season. Then I guess is is, is really yeah. so. So we still even have options for the for folks that. In fact, that if, if everybody decided to do that, obviously the regulations would would have no impact whatsoever. So, even you know, even again, there's that balance. You know, we 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 basically, I, I think of a hot water tank. You know, that's got that relief valve. You know, if guys don't like the regulation, they obviously have an out. They can shoot an antler steer because some folks tell us the only day they had to shoot an antler steer was during the muzzleloader season. And, and there probably are guys that you know, are limited to public land and only have opportunity to hunt antler steer during the muzzleloader season. And, and I feel for those guys. But the majority of folks supported the regulations, and everybody, most everybody, had an option to, to, you know, to hunt either. And that's the other key thing that's worth mentioning is that we know surveys that there are only 6%, you know, 6 out of every 100 licensed buyers in the state of Ohio find themselves limited exclusively to public land. So 94% of our hunters have may not be the best option, it may not be the best private land, but 94% of our hunters had had an option. So this was all around it. I'd say, guys, one of probably the best and most supported um, regulation changes that, that, that we've made, at least in my career. Yeah. So um, I guess one question I'll ask is, uh, do you guys have, like, how do you measure hunter participation? Like, how, how do you know how many people are participating in Say the muzzleloader season. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, it comes from an annual deer hunter survey, um, which I won't get up on my soapbox um, <laughs> and, and gripe about participation, <laughs> but because I know that everybody is surveyed to death, and I and I recognize that. But I'm hoping that maybe um, my passionate plea for people to participate more will really help us because it it has dropped to levels that um, I never thought I would see. I mean, we're getting maybe ten. 
11, 12 percent of our surveys returned. We'll send out 10,000 surveys this year, and we may get 1,200 of them back. Hey, I filled out um, my my bow hunter survey this year. Well, thank you. I got, you. A, I got an email. Yeah, that is the uh, that that is probably one of the best pieces of data that we have going for us. And 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 folks, you know, I, I really don't want to get on that soapbox, but you cannot imagine we we won't make decisions without data. I mean, so it's either going to be status quo from from here until eternity if you don't turn your surveys in, or or you know, we we don't want to manage based on gut feeling. I mean, that's just simply yeah. something that we want to avoid. Um, but but to speak to your question, uh, uh, Jason, we we do. That's one of the questions that we ask folks every year is to tell us what you know what seasons you participated in, uh, the, the county that you hunted most in, what you thought of the mass crop, what you thought of the deer numbers, what you thought of the deer hunter numbers, and, and those types of things. But um, to give you to give you some some sense for what um, what we felt were, would likely be participating. Now this these are 2017 um, numbers, but just to give you some sense based on those participation rates. Um, uh, let's see. In 2017, we estimated that about uh, maybe I should throw this back at you. What what percent of hunters do you think participated in the muzzleloader season? Just to, just to turn the tables. Oh, um, if I had to throw a wild guess out there, I would say maybe 30 percent. Oh man, really close. 35. That's that's oh. what we estimate. Yeah, about okay. 35 percent. Now, now keep in mind, this is not this does not include landowners. This is really licensed licensed adult resident hunters. So we're not surveying okay. non-residents. We're not surveying landowners. We're not surveying youth or or non-resident hunters, as I might might have mentioned. But but among adult resident hunters like yourself, 35 percent of them indicated that they hunted during the uh, the, the four-day muzzleloader season last year, which turned out to about uh, 72. Uh, Seventy-two thousand hunters uh, participated okay. in the statewide muzzleloader season last year. So really close, yeah. Well, I'm glad I asked that question and kind of gave you an opportunity to to get on your soapbox a little bit because I I do find and it's frustrating and I'm and I'm sure it's even more frustrating for you guys that that people like to gripe and complain, but then when you ask them, well, you know, did you did you send them an email? Did you did you fill out your survey? Uh, well, no, 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 you know, and so. I'm, I'm, yeah. I guess it's it's my uh, sort of uh, public call to action that you know if you guys are getting an email or um, a survey in the mail or is it do you guys send them because the yeah, survey electronic. I got an email. Yeah, you know, we're, and that's the other we're trying to you know unfortunately or fortunately I guess everything is moving to the electronic platform and, and that's where our deer hunter surveys are coming from, but. You know, we have, I think we have email addresses for almost half of the hunters that we have. And, okay. and I, I really, truly, I mean, I, I'm not harping on folks because I, I know, you know, people want to know what type of toothbrush you use, what kind of car you drive, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. the, everything. You know, they want, the, you know, and I, I'm like, oh, man, I got to return the survey because I got to walk the walk, you know. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I try to participate in everything. And so I understand completely. But, but I, I need, I mean, folks need to understand that, um, you know, we manage the other thing that we really didn't talk much about, but you know the state. We don't manage the state's deer population right now. We manage 88 different deer populations, which means we need 88 data sets, and we don't have 88 data sets. So we have to borrow. Uh, we have to, you know, we have to borrow participation rates, and we have to borrow age, sex, and condition data, and we have to borrow opinion data um, yeah. from you know from the counties where we have information. Uh, and, and extrapolate and project that into those parts of the state where, where surveys are falling low. Now we're talking about moving into deer management units, which would lower us 88 units down to 26. 
but still, um, we really, really need folks to return their surveys. You know, participation rates, uh, you know, ideas on seasons, you know, start dates. I mean, all of that stuff, is, we wouldn't ask if we didn't care. It's not lip service, I can assure you that. Yeah. So so something you just said uh, really kind of piqued my, my curiosity. You, you mentioned moving into deer management units. So, because yeah. when you guys went from the zones to the counties, you know, one of the one of the downfalls I saw with that is, you know, deer don't know county lines. It's sort of an arbitrary line that says here you can shoot two deer. You know, you go across the street here and 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 into the next county and you can shoot three deer. So with going to a with deer management units. I'm a, I, I would imagine those would be broken up into uh, sort of, I guess, more habitat populate. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. you got it. Yeah, absolutely correct. And, and, and it's funny that you mentioned that, Jason, going from zones to, 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 um, to counties. The reality is, <laughs> the reality is we, we actually were, um, um, we, we have always managed deer at the county. I mean, deer hunting returned to the state in 1943, and it's been, the county has been the management unit. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, those zones were really, um, uh, you know, I guess, got to be careful about this, but I, I politely saying they, they, they were they were kind of a disservice to the deer population because oftentimes um, we made those zones somewhat arbitrary um, to keep things simple, okay? Okay. Um, you know, so in other words, maybe Fayette County should have been a single deer county or Trumbull County should have been a three deer county, but because it was in a it was in a clump of two deer counties, we made it a two deer county. Okay, just for the ease of thinking about our hunters and thinking about trying to enforce things and thinking about regulation interpretation. So oftentimes we we not not always. I mean, but there were so there were always a couple counties or three or four that stood out that they were like, gosh, we don't want to create an island here, you know. So we'll just yeah. put this county. So we ended up over harvesting or under harvesting. So when I finally, I, I don't know whether it was 2013 or, or what year it was that I finally convinced. Uh, our senior staff um, uh, to listen. We need to move away from zones and and manage the deer herd. And and really, that got us a little. I mean, counties were always the management unit, but that got us. It looked like a patchwork quilt, and I know it probably freaked a few people out. But it, but I think what it also did was it 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 brought to the fore people recognized that that we were they, in many people's opinions we were being much more responsive, and it, it looked like much more responsive and and, and responsible, if you will. Deer management, um, yeah. because people were like, "There's no way Columbiana County should be in the same zone as Scioto County. They're totally different. You know, they're totally different counties. Mm-hmm. The topography's different. Mm-hmm. The habitat's different. The deer densities are probably different." So, it, it really was a nice. Uh, it was a good opportunity to start having a discussion about, "Hey, we can make this even better by going to deer management units, which, which are which are basically habitat-based management units instead of political boundaries." Uh, we're trying to we're trying to partition the state into into logical. You know, you take a Lincoln County, you take a Richland County, you pick most any county you'd like. Take a Holmes County, if you will. Um, you know, there's there's always gradations from either east to west or north to south. You know, heavily farmed in the north and heavily wooded in the south or east and west. You know, pick your county and you're going to find a situation where it just makes sense to divide the county up because a single regulation is not suitable for most counties in the state of Ohio. Now, there are some blocks of, you know, there are some counties where it, it makes sense, where you have relatively sure. homogeneous mm-hmm. habitat across the landscape. But by and large, um, there are very few counties where deer distribution is, is, is evenly distributed, and hence 
a regulation placed on top of a county where deer numbers and access and hunter pressure varies from township to township and even from section section to section makes no sense at all. So so I'm I'm really excited. I'm I'm hopeful that this fall of 2019 hunters will see deer management units in the state of Ohio. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. Yeah. They've been really supported. Yeah, they've been really supported by our hunting publics. Really uh we because we've talked about it since 2012. I mean, people are aware of them. They're looking for them. They understand them. Uh we had a deer stakeholder group that we just wrapped up in the spring of 18. Uh, unanimous, unanimous support by those, by those that very broad uh, constituency. Uh, they understood them. They're like, they make sense. Why, 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 why haven't we had them sooner? You know, those are kind yeah. of, those are the kind of reactions that we get when we talk about deer management units. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are, believe it or not, coming up on an hour here, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, is there any? Jeff, do you have any concluding questions? And Mike, do you have anything you want to touch on before we before we call it quits today? I don't have any more. Well, questions. no, I don't. I, I mean, if I if I start talking about deer, we could be here till seven thirty. Um, so <laughs> I will leave. I will leave you guys with a thank you uh, for having you know having me on. I really, I really, um, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope we can continue to do this. Um, there's. I would imagine there's probably a lot of things that we can talk about if you guys have the time and, and the desire. We can we can certainly make this happen. So thank well, thank you for having me. Well, yeah, and I want to thank you. Yeah, so I want to thank you for coming on and taking time out of your schedule. Really appreciate it, and I would love to do more of this because I I know I could continue to talk your ear off here and and just listen <laughs> to all the things you have to share, but. Uh, I haven't eaten dinner yet tonight, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So there are more important things than deer right now. It's, it's sure. an empty stomach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, with that, Mike, thanks again. This has been You're very welcome. awesome, awesome conversation, and I think uh, I think our listeners are going to appreciate it. So, Okay. I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Yeah, right. will do. Yep. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Bye, Bye now. And there you have it. I want to thank Mike for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We really enjoyed talking to Mike and found it super interesting. We hope to do more of these with Mike in the future, so the best way to keep up to date with that is to make sure you're subscribed to the show. So whatever platform you're using to listen to the show, make sure you're subscribing to the show. The other good way is follow us on Facebook. We're Ohio Huntsman. Follow us on Instagram, we're Ohio Huntsman Podcast, and sign up for our newsletter. We send out an, uh, an email every week when we release the episode. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.